you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. It's life and debt, not life and death. That's the subject of today's Queer Money, managing your debt while living a good quality of life. We talk with attorney Leslie Tain of Tain Law Group about LGBTQ discrimination in the workplace, how that affects queer people's financial security, and what we can do to overcome that. We also talk about managing debt and living your life, something people think can't be done together. Leslie is a debt solutions attorney and has been in the industry for over 20 years. She also has a book called Life and Debt, A Fresh Approach to Achieving Financial Wellness. Leslie shares some great practical advice that we can all start applying to our lives today. Next, how would you feel if you could pay off that last $1,000 on your credit card? How about finally making that last auto loan payment or even just cutting your debt in half? If this sounds like something you want, then you want to take the Debt-Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge available at DebtFreeGuys.com. Finally, if you like this or any other episode of Queer Money, please help us get it into the ears of more people. Please share Queer Money with one or two listeners in your life today. Thank you. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We have attorney Leslie Tain on the show. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. We're excited to have you. So we're going to talk a little bit today about LGBTQ discrimination and a little bit about some unique nuances about the LGBT community as it pertains to debt and some topics about debt. And as the debt-free guys, it's a very topical <laughs> show. <laughs> so, so let me ask you, from your perspective, you're an attorney on the East Coast, you're a whole different world than what David and I are from. Very often we'll receive on direct messages or on social media, a lot of people have balls on social media, <laughs> that want to say that LGBTQ discrimination doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a myth to some people. People aren't denied housing, they're not denied employment, they're not denied uh, services because of their LGBTQ status. And we anecdotally have some examples that that's uh, not the case. But from your perspective, do you see LGBTQ discrimination? So I, I honestly don't see it too often. I, I live and work in New York, uh, in Manhattan and the suburbs of Manhattan. So I have to be honest about the, you know, this is a different type of community. It's a very, New York's a very accepting community. You know, I, I remember very clearly um, a Broadway actress was talking about her husband and they're of different races. And they were talking about, she was talking about the fact that, and I happened to grow up with this woman. And she was talking about the fact that in New York, they never experienced experienced any discrimination. Everybody just accepted them for who they are. And then outside, when they moved outside of New York, they uh, experienced things that they had never experienced here with regard to people making comments or discriminatory type of behavior. So again, I'm going to have to say that I don't really have a lot of personal experience with it because, you know, again, this is an area that's very sophisticated and, and very accepting uh, everybody's different here in New York, uh, and we go about our business and do our thing. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm sure that it happens, and maybe it's not as overt as it is in other areas. But again, you know, when I think when you're in a little bit more rural area and the percentages of the individuals who identify in the LGBTQ community are smaller, I think that's when you may have some issues, whereas in an, an area like New York area and the East Coast, this, uh, certainly in uh, South Florida, where we also spend some time in um, you know, highly concentrated areas, 
you, you know, we don't really see that because the percentages of the LGBTQ community are higher. So and the, it just would be normal with that type of um, population. So um, it's certainly not something that comes up on a regular basis, in, even in the legal community. I have to be honest about that, too, as we delve into this concept of it. You know, we I do go to a lot of continuing legal education courses. Um, you know, lately we talk a lot about sexual discrimination and the laws have changed here in New York where um, there's a requirement for employers to have very strict sexual discrimination policies. Um, but it's not that we see requirements or have a lot of discussion about issues and needs of the LGBTQ community and discriminatory behavior or acts towards individuals who identify in that community. Right. So I, I think one of the important things uh, that you're pointing out here, Leslie, is and, and what John and I have found when we talk with a number of our friends, either mm-hmm. here in Denver or in L.A., in some of these larger cities is that it may oftentimes appear that we live in a bubble, that we are fortunate enough to live in some of these communities where that kind of discrimination doesn't happen. But we're still aware of the fact that in 30 states, it's still legal to fire someone because they're LGBTQ or to deny them of the, these services. So I think that, that's sad. Right. That's, that's it sad. is. And, and surprising, right? It's 2018 and we have it to. It is. I mean, honestly, it's so normal. It's so it's so I don't even from my personal perspective, I don't see any difference in in people identifying with the LGBTQ community. It's not it's like no it's like normal and like you said like in denver and la and new york uh and i'm sure even in miami you you know you're gonna get areas you're gonna get people who it's no big deal it's it's normal it's just what just another person so um and these other and it's unfortunate that a lot of other areas but you see that in a lot of different issues also so uh it's unfortunate that there's a majority out there that still haven't really caught up with uh, the reality of, you know, uh, of, the, of the world. Right. So let's just say, you know, we, we live in a world where many people now think that things are equal because of marriage equality. But let's say an individual is living in one of those cities where the percentage of LGBTQ people or all minorities, let's just say, are, are smaller and they experience something like this, some form of what they think is discrimination. As an attorney, do you have any suggestions as to what they may do? You know, it may be hard to not react either in a fight or flight manner, but how logically, what should someone be thinking about? So I think from a legal perspective, um, there's a number of things that one should consider. You have to really have a try to have a clear head about it. There's a sometimes a sensitivity that comes with you know a particular issue, uh, and you want to be you want it to be clear what's happening. So one of the things that I, I recommend is that you you keep a written record of instances of what you consider alleged discrimination against you. Um, I would not keep that on your work computer. I would <laughs> keep it on, on your personal computer or your personal self. Just keeping a record of things that go on and seeing if if the behaviors are pervasive, uh, if they're ongoing, is it a one-time incident? You know who's involved with it, and then once it becomes something that uh, you see a pattern, meaning not not necessarily just one time, but like two times, you you need to talk to your human resources. So if you are working in a company that has a human resource department, you should definitely alert them and provide them with the specifics uh, and the details and be prepared to that they will do an invest or they should do an investigation of the alleged incidents. If you don't have an HR department, 
uh, you should definitely go to your uh, employer, your boss, your supervisor, uh, and have a conversation and say, you know, I've written these things down. This is what I've experienced. And I would like to bring this to your attention. I would also, prior to necessarily doing that, I might have a conversation with either a, an employment rights attorney or a, a trusted friend or advisor, not necessarily a coworker. And I'm going to suggest that you not necessarily talk to a coworker because you could bring that coworker in on an investigation and it would definitely not be a comfortable situation. So have a conversation outside the workplace and, and describe what you've been experiencing uh, and see what somebody else feels as well. But you should definitely bring that to HR and definitely bring it to your uh, supervisor and talk about the incident or incidences that you've experienced. And just also keep a record of that conversation. I'm not suggesting that you record the conversation, uh, you know, on a electronic device, uh, because in some states that's illegal. But in the case where you have the conversation, you definitely want to make a note in your notebook or wherever you're keeping notes on these incidences that I had a conversation on such and such a date. I explained, I showed, and this is what happened or didn't happen. And then follow along and see whether they do the actual investigation, which they should. So if they don't do the uh, investigation and it continues, then you definitely want to uh, elevate it or feel if you're comfortable elevating it, file a report with the state labor department and the federal uh, you know, equal opportunity employment commission right away. And then you, the, again, there's lots of not-for-profit organizations out there that can be very supportive under the circumstances. You know, if it's really pervasive and it's not something that you could deal with then you know, try to elevate it quickly. Uh, if it's subtle and and but it's problematic and it's making you feel uncomfortable, uh, I still encourage you to bring it to their attention because they may not be aware of the individual or the incidences. They may not be aware of that it's troublesome or bothersome. So sometimes just bringing it to light can you know create change and opportunity for change. So uh, I know that people get very nervous about doing that because they're very afraid of losing their job right. and, you know, and creating waves and creating, uh, you know, extra sensitivity and other problems. But I think it's really important uh, that if you're feeling that way and you're uncomfortable, that you definitely take these steps. Uh, and there may be some others. Some of them may be very state specific also. So a little research online would be a good idea. And like I said, there's lots of not-for-profits. You can always go to a bar association or a local law school and see if they have a clinic that you know, is in labor and employment or discrimination clinics and talk to them and see what options that you have in your specific state to address the issues that you're feeling with your employer. Gotcha. So that's a lot of great advice. And I think what you're outlining there is sort of how do you take the conversation beyond just a he said, she said kind of scenario? At what point do you would you suggest that somebody has enough information to go to HR? Um, you don't want to go there prematurely. You don't want to set off false flags. How do you know you have enough information that might support your case? Well, I think that's a case by case basis. Uh, that's why I suggest that, you know, maybe have a conversation with somebody outside and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just feeling uncomfortable about these comments or uh, I'm feeling uncomfortable that, you know, I was passed up for a promotion and I, I heard the person who passed me up for a promotion make a comment or I've seen things in the office. I think it's really specific on what's happening to you. So and again, I, I when I uh, started talking about the answer to the question initially, I said, you know, sometimes it depends on your level of sensitivity. So, you know, everybody, every individual, regardless of race or background or sexual orientation uh, or identification has a level of sensitivity. Some people are more sensitive than others. And you 
might be more sensitive to certain discussions in the office than others, whether they're appropriate or not, uh, whether there's insinuations in those conversations or not, or behaviors or attitudes, or you might sense that the person doesn't like you and you're feeling that they don't like you because of your sexual orientation, but maybe they don't like you because they don't like the color of your hair. Uh, either way, <laughs> you know, and that could happen. That's where the sensitivity piece comes from. Like, why is, why is this happening to me? What is happening to me? Am I seeing this clearly? Is this something that I do need to elevate? And that's why taking it outside of yourself and bringing it to a trusted advisor or a friend outside your organization, uh, or being very, very careful about a conversation with a coworker saying, you know, I'm feeling a little sensitive about the conversation. Were you feeling sensitive about that conversation? What was your what were your thoughts on the conversation that happened in the office or the the incident that happened in the office? What was your take on it? Without saying to that individual, hey, you know what? I feel like they they don't like me because I'm gay, and um, you know that's why I'm not being uh, getting uh, promotions like everybody else is. I don't think I would address. I don't recommend addressing it like that. I recommend addressing it like, hey, what are your thoughts about the recent promotions of other employees? You know, why do you think they got those promotions? Or the discussion in the office today seemed a little awkward. Did you have that feeling too? You know, without leading them to, uh, you know, why you think it was awkward or uncomfortable or a potential discriminatory situation. Yeah. So. You know, I think, again, it's very specific on what's happening to you. If it's really overt and somebody says something so gross to you, you know, and, you know, that's right away, you should say something. Or if they if they actually came out and said, we passed you up because we don't like your sexual orientation or we don't believe in that kind of stuff around here, then obviously elevate it right away. But if it's subtle and small and questionable, you know, it might be something that you want that you wait one or two or three times to see whether it's a, there's a pattern there. And um, that's why I said it's a little bit, it's going to be specific as to the type of incidents that happen. And sometimes it's specific to the individual person. And I don't want to downplay sensitivities at all and, and, um, and act like, you know, there's a, that people are, you know, too sensitive when this stuff comes up. But again, sharing it a little bit, with somebody might give you an idea of whether you took something out of context or not, or whether right. it could be perceived differently. Because remember, when they do the investigation, um, or hopefully when they do the investigation, there's going to be an outcome. And the outcome could be that, you know, that you took something the wrong way. And that's not what it was meant at all. Like I said, maybe they just don't like your hair color. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're just taking it in a different way, because of a previous sensitivity to an issue. And that happens with all of us, regard, again, regardless of sexuality or identification, it happens to all of us where we feel I might be more sensitive on, on an issue than you are. And there might be a joke that's going around that I don't find funny and you find funny, but it's really not a discriminatory issue. It's just a sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to downplay the reality of being discriminated against but, you know, we have that a lot and I'll make that comparison in for, for women these days is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, from the Me Too movement, there's a lot of sensitivity now on the commentary that's made in offices and professional environments because people have become very sensitive to I don't want to be accused of being, you know, discriminatory or abusive towards women um, and the the community, the, the professional community has become very sensitive to how to say things. And, you know, and, and every minority, you want to be, you know, you want to, you want to make sure that you're not being discriminated against, but also there's that fine line with the sensitivity aspect of it and whether it's really a discriminatory comment or whether it's really um, something that just becomes a sensitive topic. Sure. Yeah, I think that's, that's a lot of uh, great advice. I think it helps people understand, you know, 
maybe provide some context about the actual situation. And probably the best thing to do is to talk with a friend or a family member or a trusted advisor or mentor that you might have um, before you maybe escalate things. Yeah, you want to be really careful because one thing I could tell you is you don't want to escalate things that are not you don't want to be the, like the boy who cries wolf kind of thing where you right. where you start to escalate every little thing or then you're going to become uh, a you'll be somewhat of a problem employee if you are escalating things that are really just sensitivities uh, and really not a basis for discrimination. There are situations where it is not like that, but Again, you want to be taken seriously and you want your complaint to be taken seriously. And the point of making the complaint to HR or your employer is to make a change so that there is uh, on the employer's end and, and fellow co-workers and, and colleagues and employees end that there's an understanding that, you know, that's not an acceptable behavior, pattern, action, comment or otherwise. And you want it to be able to stick, obviously. And right. so you don't want to be making uh, comments and complaints that are uh, unfounded because, you know, you want them to take you seriously. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The reason this topic is important for this particular show is because, you know, if you are being discriminated against because of your sexual orientation or gender identity, that's going to affect your financial security. But likewise, as Leslie says, if if you are becoming the boy or girl who continues to cry wolf, um, you're kind of self-sabotaging your situation. And that's also going to inhibit your financial security. Right. Totally. You don't want to get fired. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think it's important for you when you're feeling this to remember what you, you just mentioned, that it's it's much bigger than just you, right? It, it is the whole office or it is the whole company in some cases. It could be the way that your company moves forward. If you're just looking at it from your personal perspective, you may not have the opportunity to affect true change if you do continue to cry wolf. Although, you know, I, I do have to caution that that just because something has happened doesn't necessarily mean you're crying wolf. Like you said, you have to look at the severity or the level of what has happened, what's transpired. True, exactly. Uh, and that's really good advice. And you want to make a difference. And, you, you know, for, and it's not just for you, it's for your community as well. Right. Uh, you, you know, you want to be able to, you know, and it's very hard to come out and make a complaint and go and talk about it. You know, and I and I do understand that from the perspective of a woman in the legal industry, and and uh, twenty years ago, uh, that you know behaviors were really bad. So you know, it it becomes very hard because you know your job is really important to you, and your career is really important to you, and sometimes you're willing to overlook things because of that overall goal. That you know, find there's a financial security piece of the puzzle, and jo good jobs aren't necessarily easy to come by. Jobs where you're happy aren't necessarily easy to come by. So you're willing to overlook things sometimes that shouldn't be overlooked. But if it's really something that's intolerable and, and where you feel like you can make a, a positive change, then I really encourage you uh, to do so and and speak to speak to some organizations about it before you go to if you're really uncomfortable going to your employer and just make sure that you're protected. You know, in New York, you're an at-will employee, uh, like other states, so they don't have to give you a reason to fire you. So they can just terminate you. So uh, even if you ask for an explanation, they could just say, we're terminating you. And that's the end of it. So uh, again, you want to be aware that, that unfortunately, that, that could be an end result under circumstances where, uh, you know, you may, your complaints may not be perceived correctly. And I say this 
hesitantly only because in reality, that's not what should go on. Right. <laughs> you know, if there's a complaint in my law firm, I want to know about it. I want to know if somebody feels uncomfortable about a comment joke otherwise, or somebody's behaving badly. Like I have a no, I have a zero tolerance for any of that stuff, but that's not the prevailing attitude in every single uh, workplace environment, although it should be. Right. Exactly. So from a minority's perspective, you're you're a woman, or if you're an LGBT person, based on your sexual orientation, gender identity, is there anything that you would suggest that people who fall into minority categories do differently with their finances than maybe the standard advice that we hear you know, in the media and on the internet? So I think that's a really good point, because I think that you know, you, you have to have a little bit more of a savings and cushion than the than the average person because under the circumstances, if you are working in an area where the community is not as accepting and you perceive that there may be some potential hiccups in your career path as a result of the intolerance of your either your your current workplace, your um, career choice and the type of community that you're working in, then you might want to consider having a better uh, grip on your finances where you actually have a larger savings than the average. So let's say on average, we tell people to have six to nine months of savings just in case of an emergency or loss of job. If you're in a tenuous situation where you feel that, you know, as a result of being a minority or, or identification uh, or sexuality that you could be in a position of, of discrimination, you definitely want to have more of a cushion in your savings because this way, if you lost your job or you uh, need to get back into a position and the environment that you're working in or area that you live in is not as tolerant, it may take you longer to find a new job. So you might need more money from that perspective. So you know, definitely consider the environment that you're in and the type of career path that you've chosen. You know, is the career path uh, one that's tolerant? Is it big business? Is it tolerant? And, uh, you know, can I easily get a job if I were to lose my current job? Or are you in an environment where uh, it's not, you know, the, the individuals or people around you are not tolerant and that if they found out, uh, you might be in a position where you could lose your position. Right. Uh, if that's the case, then you definitely want to uh, ramp up that savings much more than um, than you would in a in an alternate situation where you wouldn't have those experiences. Great, thank you. Yeah, so you're saying when you say maybe consider having 12 month worth of emergency savings to prepare for tenuous circumstances, that sounds gigantic. <laughs> well, <laughs> so the average what you... is six to nine. Right. Uh, the average the average savings that you should have uh, in a healthy financial situation is six to nine months of living expenses in the bank. So it does seem gigantic because most people don't have it. But when we talk about, you know, optimum financial health versus, you know, as you go down the ladder of what's um, a comfortable financial position, if you're looking for optimum financial health, then six to nine months of living expenses in the bank is what you should have. Now, obviously you go down from there. Well, you only have a month of living expenses. You know, you're teetering on a very dangerous area because if something should happen and you can't work or income doesn't come in for whatever reason, you are out of money in one month. You know, right. you only have enough to cover your expenses for, for, for 30 days. That's, that's not a healthy financial position. So um, ideally you want to have as much as you can, but the goal is six to nine months. And again, when you're in a situation where your um, status in a work environment is uh, questionable, it's not as stable as you'd like it to be, then you want to have more because what if it took you a year to find a job? 
Right. I mean, that, I mean, that's what I deal with on a regular basis. People who are, you know, life happens and there are events that intervene in your ability to earn money at t- different times in your life uh, by choice or otherwise. And without having the proper money, you're going to live off credit cards and end up in a tremendous amount of debt. And then you'll need me. Right. Yeah. I, I appreciate what you're saying here because I think back to the article in the Atlantic from several years ago, and I know that it's been updated more recently, that I think it, it's 47% or more than 40% of Americans could not afford a four or $500 emergency. They wouldn't have access to either a credit card or cash or they they wouldn't have access to money to that for that and so that i think that's part of the reason why that number looks or appears so huge is cuz like you said so few of us or f- so few americans actually are that prepared so as lgbt people it is even more important for us to make sure that we're getting beyond that and i know that there's some recent information out from mass mutual uh, that shows that lgbt people have take on more mortgage debt, more student loan debt, more credit card debt than our straight counterparts. So one of the things that maybe we should have more of is more of an emergency savings. <laughs> totally. And that's probably a result of more debt is probably a result of the the job situation. So, and that's either the, the choice of careers or the choice of where you live and finding the jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of that is, you know, when you're looking at statistics like that, uh, I think it makes sense because uh, certainly in the past, things were much more discriminatory than they are today. Right. Uh, and that made it more difficult to find a job, sustain a job, et cetera. So, you know, the statistics make sense. So when you're identifying in that community uh, or in the community of LGBTQ, I really think it's important to err on the side of caution and have an extra savings, have an extra plan. You know, you have to have those plans in general. I'll tell you why. I have a, I have a friends in Florida, a couple that I've been friends with for a while. And when there was the hurricane uh, and they were going to evacuate a few years ago and they were going to drive north, uh, she told me that they were very worried about having to stop along the way in certain areas in the southern part, uh, north of Florida, but, uh, you know, the southern part of the East Coast. She said that they were very worried about having to stop and stay at a hotel there. And I said, why? You know, I said, why would you have, why would you be worried about that? So, you know, when she explained to me why they were concerned about that, you know, it never dawned on me. I never thought of something like that. But as a, as a Jewish person, I worry about that in certain circumstances too. So I understand. But for, for them, they were explaining that, you know, they needed to have more money available to them in case they needed to find alternate places to live yeah. during the time that they were evacuating and have more cash on hand to get further along in their drive to get further north up to New Jersey and, uh, and the northern part of the East Coast. So it is something that you need to think about that if uh, you were in a, in a situation, look at the Florida panhandle. I mean, yeah. if you needed to uh, evacuate or you needed to go someplace and you needed money and you're out of work, you know, you're not talking about when you're evacuating north from those areas, areas that are as tolerable as, like we said, in the areas that we discussed. So you might need more money to drive further to get to areas where you're not going to have issues. So something to really think about, you know, in the overall scheme of those things. So I'm going to throw this out there. 
we've got the Gene Chatskys, the David Box, and the Susie Ormans that have been preaching this message of fiscal responsibility for decades. And now we've got this whole new industry of personal finance bloggers and podcasters, similar to David and me, who have been preaching about this for at least 10 years or more. And we've got, you know, there are millions of books about how to get out of debt, stay out of debt, and all sorts of personal finance topics. But every year, the data about the amount of debt that Americans have continues to get worse, and minority communities tend to struggle even more than the, you know, the straight cis white men. I guess essentially, why isn't the message resonating, and what can we do differently to actually affect change? You know, I'll throw that to Leslie first. So uh, there's a couple of couple of issues there. You know, it's like a diet. You know, America is one of the most obese countries out there. So the question is, when there's all this healthy food choices available, why are Americans generally so? Why are the percentages so high in this country of being being obese? So it's sort of a similar message as far as the you know you should you should eat healthy and be aware of things that are good for your heart and your exercise on a regular basis. But a lot of people don't. So the question is, why does that happen financially? Sometimes it's access to the information and access to um, to the healthy diet financially. You know, when you are really struggling, uh, that's not necessarily what you're thinking about. Well, how can I be more fiscally healthy, you know, when I really can barely pay my bills? So it's not necessarily something that becomes at the forefront of your situation. It's like if you uh, were running out of money, you would probably cut out your vitamins before you cut out other things. So when you're looking at the messages, yeah, the, the messages are correct. How, you know, let's be physically fiscally responsible. Let's be financially healthy. You know, there are ways to get out of and manage debt and to stay out of it. But life does happen, and the uh, percentages of people who end up staying in and perpetuating it are often caught in um, the minority population because there's a limitation to accessibility to the help that you need. So. Obviously, I'm an attorney and I deal with a lot of clients from who make no money or on disability to people or unemployment to people who make millions of dollars a year and everything from, you know, teachers and police officers to um, professional athletes and uh, people who are in the um, entertainment industry. You know, everybody has some level of debt and financial issue. The question is, how is it managed and what are you doing to um, help yourself? There is these days a more accessibility uh, online and uh, an opportunity to learn and help yourself manage money and manage your debt better. I, I'm not a big fan of using the terminology get out of debt because in reality, you can't get out of debt. Uh, you're going to have some sort of debt. You're always going to have to pay the IRS if you earn money. You're going to have a car payment or a house payment. So those are debts. It's a matter of managing it so that it works for you and that it doesn't get out of control. So even if you're not very educated and you didn't grow up with parents who were physically responsible or discussed things with you, so you had no idea how to budget and you just lived your life and didn't know that you needed to put money away, you can always start. It's so basic and so easy. You just have to have the motivation to do so. And I see lots of success stories for people in all different types of communities, minorities and otherwise, who um, have the ability to focus and get out of debt. And a lot of it is really mindset. So it's um, thinking about your finances in a particular way, thinking about how it can work for you. And one of the things that I stress always is that no two finances are ever the same. They're like a fingerprint. You right. are a unique individual with unique wants and needs and unique finances. No two people have the same priorities. 
So just because it works for somebody else, it doesn't mean that it works for you. So you need to figure out financially what works for you in your environment. So yeah, you can read every book and, I, and I'm an author and I wrote a book called Life and Debt, but that doesn't mean that every single thing that's out there can work for you. And just because it was successful with somebody else doesn't mean that it's going to be successful for you. So the first thing to do is get in your own head and determine what makes sense for you. You know, do you, what's a priority for you? You know, write down things that are important to you and things that you want to achieve, not only financially, but otherwise, because if you want to achieve home ownership, there's a financial piece of that. If you want to achieve vacations every year for 30 days a year, there's a financial component to that. But again, your vacation and my vacation and my home and your home may be on two different levels. So, you know, you can't say saving for your vacation makes sense this way because this way may be a way that's unrealistic. Right. So, and I know that because I've dealt with thousands and thousands of people with debt and from every community. So every single walk of life, debt is not discriminatory in, in any way. You can eat, get it no matter what age you are, what sexual orientation you are, what gender you are, you know, when you fill out, you know, when you're spending money, when you put that credit card in a machine, it doesn't ask you any of those questions. So right. you could get into debt well, well on your own without having the other issues. And your credit score and your credit rating and your interest rates are not based on, you know, your identification or your sexual orientation and your gender. I mean, those are choices that we make financially. So let's make good choices. Let's make good decisions about your finances and understand that like in the LGBTQ community, you might have other financial constraints that other people don't. So looking at that, you know, what your career choice is, what your ability to earn money is, and then what your needs and wants are, uh, will help you keep your money and finances in check. Gotcha. So you, you mentioned this a couple of times so far about your career choice. Do you, in your experience, do you have people who are struggling with debt who decide that changing careers is the, the best option? Totally. Totally. I've had, I've had um, people who are hairdressers become nurses. Um, you know, I've had people leave jobs that just, there's, it's a dead end. They're not going anywhere with it. Go back to school because uh, they wanted a particular, a particular career. Many, many times I've seen people leave it because it's just not financially where they uh, want to be. I mean, think about it. If you want to be a social worker and the average income of, of social workers is fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, and you went to NYU and that cost you seventy five grand a year, you know, you're not going to be able to ever pay off those student loans. So uh, very often I see uh, the millennial generation more so than anybody else saying, you know what, I made the wrong choice in college and um, I really should have been thinking about how I was going to support myself. And now I realize that the choice I made, while I love the topic and the concept, it's just not realistic for supporting myself, a spouse and, and now children. So um, I do I do see that and looking for opportunities within that career choice to to elevate yourself to another level where there is a level of financial security. That really is the goal in whatever career choice and, and financial status that you're in. You want financial security because you don't want to wake up every day and wonder if you're going to have money to pay the bills. It's just so stressful. Emotionally, that's draining. And there's only so much that you're going to be able to live with that emotional drain of the stress from worrying about paying bills. So, so it's not uncommon to change careers for sure. I mean, think about all the actors and actresses and people in those industries that really wanted those careers so badly, but they starved for so many years and had no money. And then either they changed careers or they, uh, you know, they got their big break, but it took them 10 or 15 years of having no money uh, to get there. 
I mean, we've seen that um, it recently, actually, in the news on um, on a particular case. But the reality is that you know, earning money is important. The question is how much money. You don't need to earn, you know, a million dollars a year to be happy and comfortable. But you want to decide what your lifestyle expectations are. So, you know, there there are choices that we make with our careers. And it's not always ideal, but you want to find a way to um, be able to support yourself. Making a career choice where you're going to have difficulty supporting yourself and then eventually if you want a family, your family isn't really a great choice because you will spend your entire adult life stressed. Uh, and it's it doesn't get easier as you get older, especially when you have children. It gets harder as you get older because you so much want the financial security piece, because as you start to age, you start to worry more about the reality and the practicality of needing health care, needing long term care, needing uh, money for the kids, uh, you know, being able to take care of your home. If God forbid you lost your job or there was some sort of uh, medical issue that you couldn't work or an environmental issue with nature and maybe your career choice gets eliminated because of technology. So you don't always know that in the beginning of your career, but I definitely see people change careers very often. Don't be afraid of changing a career. Go with what makes you happy. I mean, the whole point of everything we talk about and the whole point of, uh, of the platform from the, certainly I believe from the LGBTQ community is being happy and being out there and honest with yourself and with the, with the world. And, you know, if you're in a career that you're unhappy with and it's not making the money that you expected, then then it's more important to be happy than anything else. And, um, you know, money will come when you're happy. Yeah. I do appreciate a couple of things here you've mentioned. One, getting inside your head, because when, when you're in your, your own head and you leave behind what society has told you, and even what the LGBTQ community may have told you, you have the opportunity then to say, what what truly does make me happy? You know, does my career make me happy? Well, if it does, then I have to have expectations based on the amount of money that I can earn. If I absolutely 100% love being a social worker, I have to understand that I probably am not going to be able to afford a $700,000 house or to drive a brand new Audi. There are those expectations that we need to have. Uh, and then, like you said, if there's sometimes we need to make changes to achieve what really will bring us happiness. And sometimes that means that we give up something that has been a part of our lives for a long time, like a career or like a job. Yeah, no doubt. And and that's sometimes it's disappointing. But, you know, listen, one door closes, another one opens. I'm, I'm always a half, the glass is half full person. I always, to me, I look at everything as there's an opportunity, you know, if something is bad, there's a reason for that. Because on the other side of that bad, there's something good. And, um, you know, in this life, you know, it's all about finding what, what makes you happy and what works for you. It's really not about, and certainly from from an outsider's perspective on the LGBTQ community, uh, it's about being happy and about doing what's, about finding self-preservation and self-peace also. So I see it, you know, from the financial world on a regular basis. I tell this to people all the time. It's just money and debt. It's not the end of the world. It's not life and, it's not life and death. It's life and debt. It's, uh, you know, there are changes you could make. 
You may not feel that you can make those changes, but there are if you don't get caught up with what's inside your head, what's expected of you, what you should have done, what people want you to do, what you think other people think is the right thing to do. You know, financially, I see that too, uh, where people making decisions financially based on a lot of pressures that are inside their head. And, and the reason why I'm so successful at helping people is because I'm not in anybody's head. It's not an emotional decision when I'm helping people with finances. I really see the uh, financial situation very clearly on each individual that I work with, uh, and I'm able to communicate that and show them a, a path that makes sense to help them get to the other side. That's very hard to do when you're inside your own head and you have a lot of voices talking to you that are feeding you information about self-doubt and what's expected of you and what you're supposed to be doing. And if you can you, if you can work really hard on getting that outside of your head and, and work with somebody, whether it's a therapist or whether it's a, an attorney or a professional or yourself, write it out. What are the things that I want to make me happy? You know, maybe, maybe you grew up in a home where they told you that you have to work in a uh, mining job, you know, your, or you had right. to be a firefighter because your whole family are a bunch of fi are firefighters. And that's wonderful for everybody else who made that choice. But maybe you don't want to run into a burning building and that's not your thing. <laughs> and I can understand that, but you know, that is, and that wouldn't make you happy if that was your choice. You have to be able to say, for me, that's not the choice that I want to make for my lifestyle. I, I want to do something else. I want to be an actor or I want to be uh, whatever it is, a debt resolution attorney. You know, whatever <laughs> that might be, you know, it's it's for you to make the decision of what works for you and, and for you to be happy. And, um, you know, I think what happens is, you know, I see that a lot financially where one person is trying to make another person happy financially so they don't communicate well uh, about the money situation and it ends up in a worse situation. So communicate with yourself honestly and openly about where you're at, what you want to do, uh, what's happening around you and what your goals are. It's like I said, my goals are different than yours and it's not necessarily based on gender or sexual orientation, but it's um, it might be. So if it is, and that may be, then, you know, you, you have to look at that. Right. So, so Leslie, you, you did write a book, Life and Debt, and you've helped a number of individuals. What do you think, besides the, the, the truly discovering what makes you happy, because some people might say buying Louis Vuitton bags makes me really happy. Um, makes me happy. <laughs> but when you've, when you've worked with these individuals, what, what are you seeing are some of the, maybe the top two or three changes that people are making in their lives that have allowed them to break free of a lifestyle of, of debt, of, of continually having this debt hanging over them? So awareness is the number one. Awareness of your spending habits. So if you're just going to go out and mindlessly spend money, then you are going to end up in debt because you're not going to have any idea what's coming uh, on a regular basis. So awareness is the number one piece. How much money comes into your house and goes out of your house and what you can afford to spend each week on whatever it is. If you want to buy a $3,000 pocketbook, I don't tell anybody they can't <laughs> buy that. I just say to them, if that's fine, just make sure that, uh, that all the other bills are paid, you know, things that you have to pay. So, and that's, you know, that doesn't matter if it's a $3,000 pocketbook or a $30 pocketbook right. or uh, whatever it is that you want to purchase. You have to be aware of whether that's affordable in your budget. So, and that brings me to the second 
point, which is budgeting. So budgeting is such a dirty word and nobody likes it. Nobody likes to think about it because it involves math and nobody likes math. <laughs> and it was never everybody's favorite subject. I like math. <laughs> yeah, unless you're an engineer like my children. I have two engineering students and they I don't even know where that came from. But That's okay. <laughs> they, you know, there are people who are passionate about that, just like people are passionate about budgeting. But the reality is that budgeting is a necessity. Because you have to know on every on every given day, you should know if you were going to go to a store today, how much money can you spend? I know exactly what I could spend if I went out this week. I know exactly what bills I have every single day or every single week and every single month and what's coming up. And, you know, I know I have tuition payments for my kids' colleges coming up uh, right after Thanksgiving. They love to send that bill out. So I know <laughs> that's coming. So even though I want to go out and buy things, I'm hesitant because I know that I have larger bills coming up. So it's there's a control piece of that. So awareness, budgeting, and self-control because you want it. And I and of course you want it. You see it on Pinterest, you see it on Instagram, you see it in a store. You know, you don't have to even have to leave you, you don't have to change out of your pajamas to want things because it's right there in front of you the moment you pick up the phone and you see what everybody else has or does or is doing. So there's a self-control piece of that. Is it really important? And that's talking to yourself. Is it really something that I need or want? Do I really need that $30 or $3,000 pocketbook today? Does it fit within my budget? Am I making a good decision? Uh, is it fitting within my overall goals? So that there's a self-control piece of that. And sometimes we say, oh, screw it. Let's just go out and buy. <laughs> and that's and that happens. And, right. and I see nothing wrong with that um, because I think it's important to live. You know, you don't want to be so restricted, but sometimes, like I tell my clients when we're working through these these issues, sometimes we're being really restrictive for a short period of time because the long-term goal is even better on the other side. So sometimes we may suspend certain spending habits with a short period of time for an overall goal. So, you know, being really honest with yourself and writing it all down and deciding what, what you want and how to achieve it. Um, I think if you create that roadmap for yourself, uh, whether you get help with that roadmap or you can do it on your own, will get you to achieve that um, place financially where you're you're happy and feel free of worrying about money, debt, spending, and credit. Credit is so easy to get; it's out there. I mean, interest rates are going up, so you're going to pay a lot of money to borrow money these days. And the borrowing money on a credit card, you're borrowing money; it's a loan. You're paying it back um, with small payments, but it's a loan, and you're paying a, an enormous amount of money for a particular item if you don't pay it off. Remember, even if you got a discount, your uh, interest rates are are twice, or if not three times, the cost of the discount that you got on the item that you purchased if you're going to finance it, and it's not zero percent. So. Keep that in mind that there's a cost to going out and using that credit card if you can't pay for it. So, so the the real main points are, um, you know, the awareness piece, the budgeting piece. Try to do a budget, and like I said, it doesn't have to be the budget of the century. It just has to be something that you know well. So for me, I'm a little old school, even though I'm not old. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself old. Uh, a 20 year old might think I'm old, but I'm not. I'm not You're old. not old. <laughs> we met no, in person. Not You're not old. <laughs> so. Thank you. So what I but I like to see things visually and I like to write things down. So I have a desk calendar that sits on my desk and in red I write down what my bills are when they're due. So I can visually see what's coming up. And I really like that. Even though it's in my computer and yes, I get pop-ups and you know things like that and a lot of things are on auto pay, I still want to see on my desk calendar what's being paid, when the mortgage is due, when the car payment is due, when the when the insurance is due, when the whatever the cable bill is due. I, I write it down every single month. 
and I see it over and over again and it's ingrained in my head. So if you ask me any day of the month, what, what bill I have due, I could tell you every single one of my bills. And one of the things that I see consistently about clients who come in with debt related issues, they have no idea when things right. are due. They have no idea the amounts and they have no idea when it's due. How many people I ask what their mortgage payment is and or the outstanding balance on their mortgages and they don't know or outstanding balances on their student loans and they don't know. And a lot of that is denial from the stress of having the debt. But if you write it down and you um, are a little bit more disciplined and you have the control to do it, um, you could definitely be on the other side. So that's a lot of great practical advice. I think our listeners will be able to actually apply to their everyday finances. So as David alluded, you wrote a book, Life in Debt. Why should I buy that book if I'm in debt? So I would encourage you to buy that book, whether you're in debt or not, because it talks a lot about um, some practical advice and some tips that uh, are really important tips to know on a regular basis about finances. So we talk about budgeting, how to budget, what there's sample budgets in there, learning about your credit score, tips on debt management. Again, it's not preaching how to get out of debt because I, I don't believe that you, you are out of debt and it's an unrealistic goal to get out of debt. It's about learning to love your debt and learning to live with it. Another tip that I talk about is the fact that I, I get excited paying my bills. I get excited because I'm thankful that I have them because they've given me things like my home and my car and, and things like that. And I have the money to pay them. So I get excited to pay the bill. I know people get like they, they worry about going to the mailbox because they're frightened that there's bills. But I get excited that the bill comes because then I can pay it and it's gone and done. And I'm thankful that I have that item. It's a, it's a dichotomy between that concept in your head and, oh God, here comes the bills again. And how am I going to do this? So it's really, uh, the, the book really focuses on, um, you know, changing your mindset and having an awareness of, uh, managing your debt and tips that are going to make sense for you on a practical perspective. Again, I have been helping people in debt for over 20 years. That's all I do. I don't do this. That's not a one-off. It's not like I, I mean, I had my own debt when I uh, first started out from law school, but it's not like I wrote this because I was in debt and I can tell you what I did to fix this. I could tell you that I've helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I know what, what makes sense and what doesn't. And the tips in the book are helpful for people who've never budgeted, who are graduating from uh, high school or um, from college and are getting new jobs. Anytime you're not sure about your finances, it's a great starting point. Yeah, I will say I appreciate the, your comment here about um, that you look forward to paying your bills. Um, it's That's a very law of attraction kind of mentality of appreciating or grateful for what you do have or the ability to pay those bills. Because there are a lot of people who, like you said, it just hangs over them. And of course, the more we think about things that we don't like, the more that becomes a negative thorn in our life and it just continues to fester and grow. Yep. What you put out is what you get back. And I, like, I, like I said, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction and, and, and the universe bringing you positive things if you have a positive mindset. Um, and a lot of it really has to do with that. I do uh, think very, very clearly and often about positive money thoughts. You know, it's very hard to, to do that because money's always been such a negative. It, think about how you grew up with money and the way you were taught money from your parents. If they didn't have money, if they struggled, they might have been very angry about it. That gets passed on to you. Those are preconceived uh, ideas, notions and um, stereotypes about it. You didn't wake up. You didn't. You weren't born with issues relating to money. You grew up 
in environments where there was a um, an idea about money, finances, and bill paying. I know that in the book I wrote about it a lot that, you know, even as a kid, my father took care of it, but complained a lot about my mother and she complained about money. And I grew up with this you know, this real negative side of, of money. And I was really, it was important to me to not pass that on to my kids to sort of stop that and not, not tell them that money's a bad thing, that it's a problem, that it's an issue, that there's not enough of it. You know, I just wanted to teach them about money in positive, healthy ways and talk about it, about, you know, let's think about what we're spending and think about what you're going to need when you go away to college or, uh, how much money you're making and why you got a check. My remember my one of my kids got a, their first paycheck and they were like, "What happened to all my money?" <laughs> like, oh, welcome to the working world, and that's taxes. <laughs> Start voting. <laughs> so, right. Oh, thank God they can. This thank thank goodness they can. That's all I have to say on that. But they um, they're aware of they're aware of it. But again, I didn't want to put a a negative spin on it. But we all grew up in different environments with parents who all. Also came, uh, you know, maybe they lost their job, they hated their job, or there was just never enough money. Well, they were they were frivolous with money, where they spent it frivolously, and there was never anything left over, and they were in debt, or they're, you know, all of that gets passed on to you. So think about that. Uh, where does where do your thoughts about money and finances come from? And did your parents or who taught you about money and finance? It's sort of like a sex question, you know. Who taught <laughs> you about sex? You know, oh, I learned it on the street. Money and finances and budgeting is sort of the same concept. Like, who taught you about money and financing? Did your mom sit you down when you were like 12 or 13 and talk or your dad no. and talk to you about <laughs> the birds, the bees, and finances? They probably didn't. And if they did, they were really uncomfortable about it. So where did you learn about money? So the life and debt book will help you learn about money. It won't teach you about the birds and bees, but it will teach you about the financial part of things. Um, but it's one of those topics that, you know, is, um, you know, it's not sexy. It's uncomfortable. And, um, you know, we all wish we didn't have to think about it. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's wonderful. And even though you're not talking about sex in your book, I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. <laughs> They'll get a lot out of it. So where can our listeners buy your book and where can they keep track of you on social media and the internet? So you can definitely buy the book on Amazon, but it's also called lifeanddebtbook.com. Social media, I'm everywhere. So you can find me on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, uh, my company name is Tain Law, so it's www.tainlaw.com. And I'm Leslie Tain. You can Google me and find me everywhere. Uh, that's the best way. You can always call the office or reach out to us. Uh, me, personally, I'm always accessible. We always talk to people on the phone. Um, you know, all consultations that, that I make with clients on the phone are free. So if you have debt-related questions or issues, you're welcome to call in and we are happy to um, guide you. If I can't help you, I'll certainly send you to the right resources for sure. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so thank much for you. coming on our show and sharing your message with our audience. I think it'll really resonate with those of us who are working and learning to manage our debt. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you, Leslie, for sharing your perspective on how to manage life and debt from a debt solutions attorney's perspective. Very helpful. It was also very helpful, we thought, that you shared your perspective on the law of attraction and its approach on how you apply it to in loving your bills. So often we let bills become a thorn in our lives. And when we have bills, what it really means is that we have the means to buy the products and services that we need to have the quality of life that we do. With your book, our listeners can now figure out how to balance that good quality of life and managing their money, and that's very powerful. Next, how would you feel if you could make that last credit card payment or that last auto loan payment or cut your bills in half? 
This is something that many of us strive for, but aren't aware of how to achieve. That's why you want to take the Debt-Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge, only available at DebtFreeGuys.com. It'll help get you over that little bit of a hump that you need to become debt-free. Finally, if you like this or any other episode of Queer Money, as always, please share Queer Money with one or two people in your life today. That'll help us get more listeners and spread the message of financial freedom and liberation. Thank you, and have a good week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.